Hello, I'm Chi-Chi. Hello, I'm Jonathan. Welcome to Reasoning with Chi-Chi and John. Our goal is to explore the philosophical underpinnings of current events. A lot of people talk superficially about things that are going on today, but we really want to get to the, to the root of the matter and see the philosophical questions that underpin our society today. And to add to Chi uh, Chi's excellent points, we want to provide an alternative to the polarized discourse that is happening right now. Uh, we want to put forward an evidence-based, uh, reason-based conversation about the important events and ideas that are shaping our own time. So this is a podcast about reasoning and thinking and thinking about thinking. And we hope you enjoy your journey with us. All right, I guess uh, the subject for today is how do people arrive at their beliefs? These beliefs can be political, cultural, religious, or something else. Right. And also, how should people arrive at their beliefs? Yeah, so it's not just how people tend to arrive at beliefs, it's how people should think. Uh, my name is Gigi. Uh, I'm here with Jonathan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's go into the topic. I know you spent a lot of time thinking about the art of reasoning, how we ought to think. Um, so what would you say are the top things you you think that people tend to think? In what top ways in which people tend to think? I think uh, there are a number of ways. So I think uh, groupthink is huge. So people arrive at their beliefs not necessarily because they've carefully thought it through and looked at the evidence, because these are the beliefs that they grew up with in their own community or these are the beliefs that are sh widely shared among their friends and so in order to fit in with their friends they share those beliefs as well and they don't really question what they're what they're believing right 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 and i first want to start by saying that many of these things are not bad things in the sense yeah. I, I don't believe that you know thinking according to the way the groups have thought, especially if it's a mode of thinking that's lasted a long time, is necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. You know, it's just, sometimes it's bad, sometimes it's good, and we have to be able to explore, you know, the limits of these kinds of behavior. So, why do people think in groups, you think? I think uh, the reason why there's group think is because, uh, first of all, uh, we're social animals, and we like to be part of a community, and we feel miserable when we're not part of that community. So I think uh, it's partly this idea of feeling comfortable in the community, and maybe implicitly is this fear that if we adopt belief systems that are completely different from the belief systems of our community, we might be excluded from that community. Right, and that's, that's true for a lot of people. There are lots of communities that are really you know, rigid. Yeah, in the way that people are allowed to think. And this is, you know, when someone talks about this, you might think immediately about religious communities that act like this. Mm -hmm. But pretty secular communities act like this too. You see yeah. this age of cancel culture or where because you say something, because you disagree with me in this tiny slice of reality, I'm going to shun you. Not just shun you. I'm going to call on everybody else to shun you. And... I'm going to make sure that you're isolated from the rest of the world. Yeah. You know, that in itself is, you know, why people might tend to think in group think, right? Yeah. And you see it in uh, college campuses too. So there was this one um, college, I forgot its name, but uh, they decided to have a talk that involved a uh, left-wing professor and a right-wing prof uh, right author who wrote a number of controversial things. And some of those things were considered racist. And the whole point of the talk was that you can disagree with the right-wing offer, but uh, we should have a platform where people exchange ideas, where people get to hear, where the audience gets to listen to two people at a debate. And then they could decide uh, which uh, person makes sense and which person doesn't make sense. Or they might say, okay, I uh, disagree with this right-wing offer on ABC, but uh, you know what, he kind of has a point on uh, DEF. 
Well, what happened instead was that uh, there were a bunch of college activists that wanted to shut the debate down. They didn't want that to present. Uh, they didn't want that talk to happen at all on their campus, and so they protested and they protested so uh, vigorously and so violently that uh, they had to move the, um, uh, the talk to another part of the campus. And during that time, they actually attacked the left-wing professor and pulled her hair. <laughs> and eventually, uh, the right-wing offer and the left-wing professor, they managed to escape in a car and they managed to get away to safety. Right. But this was a very clear example of uh, this idea that, you know what? Uh, um, this is a clear example of... Uh, this, uh, of going against this idea that, you know what, it's okay to have a, um, a speaker's corner or a uh, speaking event where some of the people at that event are people you disagree with. Right. So when I think about the concept of groupthink, I can see how groupthink is necessary from mm. some sort of social cohesion. Yeah. For instance, I, I think about marriage and I'm married and... I understand how two people cannot walk together unless they share some fundamental values. And that if people, you know, do not share, do not agree on some basic things about life, hmm. it becomes impossible for them to relate with each other. Yeah. And so when I'm looking for a wife, for instance, I, f I ask a lot of questions and I, I really want to know how the person thinks. I want to know what the person's values are because I understand that we will not go far together if we don't share certain fundamental values. However, you know, there's still room on the periphery on certain things that not, you know, fundamental to my identity for disagreement. So, and I think this varies from people to people. So for instance, if I was a feminist, hmm. feminism might be the central thing to my identity. And if I'm going to be able to live cohesively with anybody, you know, in close intimate relationship, mm -hmm. they have to share that fundamental value of feminism with me. For another person, it might not be feminism that's their identity. The identity might be found in Christianity or Islam or, or any other thing. Mm -hmm. And when a person finds his identity in something, you know, for people in that community to exist together, there has to be, you know, some agreement on those basic tenets. However, we often see that it's okay then for them to disagree on the things on the periphery. But what I see happening all the time right now is that there is a, a, an extremism to this thing where you can't disagree on anything. You know, not the fundamental tenets, not anything in the periphery. Because the way it works is I rephrase everything as fundamental. I'll give an example. So imagine that I, I see the world uh, through some Marxian analysis. You know, I see the world as the oppressor versus the oppressed. And understandably, I, under I hate slavery. I hate Nazism. Yeah. I hate those extreme instances of, in which people have oppressed people in the past. Right? Mm. But then you disagree with me on a on a slight issue. You disagree with me on how the economy is supposed to work. Perhaps you, you think that you, you're a social liberal, but you think you're an economic conservative. Mm. I simply reframe the idea of economic conservatism as a continuation of the long history of oppression and put you in the class of the oppressors. Mm. And by that, you are not allowed to disagree. Okay? Imagine you were even a socialist, mm. but you had some you know, some limitations to how far you were supposed to, you were able to go in yeah. your socialism. I reframe that as you being complicit in oppression. So there is no space for you to disagree because I reframe everything hmm. as fundamental. And I think that's where the problem with groupthink is. Yeah, and uh, I think that, uh, I think you hit on like uh, two really key issues here, which is that... Um, for better or for worse, we often assume that uh, only with religion do you see extremism. And that's not really true because even people who don't have a religion, I think uh, they also want like a belief system that is akin to a religion uh, where they take things on faith in order to fill a void that was uh, left behind uh, as a result of the absence of religion. 
And so uh, Mao Zedong's communism becomes a form of uh, religion, a very extreme form, if you will. Um, the kind of uh, left-wing thinking that you're talking about from the cultural left, that becomes a form of religion. Because, uh, yes, people say, oh, well, I have uh, looked at studies that support my conclusions uh, that uh, women are socialized not to ask enough questions or um, that bras are a, a form of oppression because they force women to occupy gender roles and that square bob, SpongeBob, square pants is... Uh, uh, is a racist because it marginalizes the uh, Bikini Islander community and all of that. The problem for me, though, is not yeah. it's not even believing this. Yeah, it is that you're not even allowing anybody else disagree with you. Yeah, you know, to disagree yeah. is to oppress me. You know, that seems to be the kind of analysis that or goes you, or on. You're not even allowing people to question, so you're not allowed people to go over to, uh, to you and say, "Well, let's look at these studies. What kind of methodology did they use? Right, is this right. a robust methodology, or is this a dubious methodology?" And they would take offense at that because one, they can't answer the question. That's the first reason. The second reason is that they're so emotionally invested in the results of the study hmm. that they don't they don't want to uh, even uh, ask the question: Is the methodology by which we arrived at these results reliable? Yeah. And I, I like what you said about religion, the absence of religion producing a kind of religion in itself. Yeah. And I wouldn't even go so far as, you know, Mao Zedong. I would even come f to today and think that for some people, you know, their sexuality is so fundamental to their identity yeah. that it creates some kind of orthodoxy that re resembles religion in itself. Yeah. You know, I, I, I usually say that today's world, in today's world, the dominant religion is hedonism. You know, do whatever makes you happy <laughs> as long as it's not hurting others. You know, so to to question, you know, my self-expression, to question my beliefs, to question my ability or my my freedom to do anything that makes me happy, <laughs> that is, you know, that becomes the concept of sin in religion because... <laughs> For for religious people doing what God or you know what their holy books have said mm. or violating that is sin, but yeah. for them to 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 question or mm. to violate my or to even ask questions about my my freedom to do certain things that is the sin you know that's the cardinal sin for which there's no forgiveness. Yeah, and also I think. Uh the other key point that is raised by what you've just said is that people have a very black and white idea about what the alternative view is. So they think in terms, uh, they have a Macanaean, uh, Macanaean uh, mindset where it's good versus evil. There are my ideas which are good, the alternative has to be right, evil. Right. Even if uh, there's an, an idea that out there that is somewhat different from the ideas that I hold, well, it must be evil. It has to be right, 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 evil right. So it's you, what I said about framing things yeah. fundamentally. Yeah. So it's a whole battle between good and evil. Yeah. So no matter how slightly you disagree, you know, there yeah. it's either good or evil. You know, and uh, the the description of conservatism is a great example of that because the irony is that many of the people who brought in social legislation in the 19th century, in the 20th, early 20th century, they were conservatives. So Otto von Bismarck, he was a reactionary. He came from the Junker class, which was a uh, upper class elite of landowners in um, in Prussia. He was the first person to uh, pass uh, pensions in uh, the United uh, Empire of Germany. So was he conservative in his time or conservative when you compare him to conservatives today? Well, he was conservative, conservative in his time because uh, he was against this idea of democracy. He didn't want uh, parliament to be supreme. He wanted the um, king of Prussia to be supreme. He wanted an absolute monarchy. Mm. And... Uh, when uh, Germany was unified, it wasn't unified as a democratic state. It was unified as an empire So, second question, under an emperor. Do you think it's possible for someone to be conservative on certain ideas and liberal on other ideas? Um, yes, absolutely. So uh, but I think in the case of Otto von Bismarck, he realized he was a pragmatist in the sense that he realized in order to preserve the cons uh, conservative order, 
you had to enact some social legislation right. in order to give people a vested interest in continuing to support and sustain that order. Right. And you see the same thing with Napoleon III's um, empire. He passed a lot of social legislation too. All right. They gave uh, people in the working class and the middle class the basic necessities of life so that they had a vested interest in supporting that order. So and you that, see the same thing in the United Kingdom. So and I, I always try to make sure I'm differentiating between cynicism yeah. and genuine ideology. Yeah. So would you say that a lot of the social legislation were passed because the people actually believed that this social legislation were necessary or they were just cynics and trying to manipulate people to support so, I think a bit order. of both. Yeah. Uh, they believe that uh, if they pass social legislation, uh, there'll be more people willing to support the order. Mm -hmm. And I think also, and you see this on the uh, right, and among conservatives, even among fascists, uh, certain fascist groups, that um, the liberal, classical liberal capitalist economy wasn't working. This economy where the government was very small, played a very, very lazy, fair role in the economy, and that market forces determined what happened. Right. That wasn't sustainable because what it resulted in was uh, people uh, being, coming, uh, being poor and staying very poor while other people got very rich. Right. And it also created a um, groundswell of uh, ideologies like uh, socialism, anarchism, or with anarchists throwing bombs, for instance. That's how um, President McKinley died. Uh, right. He was uh, killed by an anarchist. All right. So, so we and they realized that in order to uh, make capitalism work, you had to create a uh, social safety net in order to, uh, you know, address some of the, um, in order to, uh, you know, blunt some of the rougher edges of capitalism and in order to make sure that uh, the fruits of capitalism were partly redistributed back to the working middle classes so that their uh, living standards didn't suffer as a result of economic change. All right. So we so that we stay on topic. Yeah, let's, sure. let's move from group thing to the next thing you identified as, you know, the 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 way people tend to think. Yeah. Uh, charismatic leaders. Oh, okay. And uh, so I think the great example of this would be Justin Trudeau. So What's interesting uh, from uh, with Justin Trudeau is that from the policy standpoint, uh, there's a lot of things that uh, Justin Trudeau's government is pursuing right now that would be considered, um, if not centrist, then center-right. So, first of all, there is uh, greater investment in uh, clean technology companies in the form of grants, and which are uh, and in the form of uh, R&D support, so research and development support, and that is to incur help those uh, clean tech companies grow bigger and bigger. Is that a center right position, though? Well, it's a corporatist position. Uh, is it? It's a, it? a pro business position. Sure. I'm not sure though, because I, I think that's you know arguable. A person can argue that you know by doing that you you're just trying to change the way that people use energy and I think that a lot of yeah. progressives will support such a thing because it's not supporting it's not necessarily a pro business position because it's not a, it's not supporting all business it's yeah. not it's not pro oil companies it's not pro um, coal companies it's pro a certain kind of business yeah. that fulfills a certain progressive agenda uh, certainly there would be companies in the fossil fuel industry that wouldn't benefit but I think the broader picture is that uh, in order for companies to be internationally competitive, they need to be able to reduce and contain their energy costs. And clean tech innovations are key to doing that. And so um, while uh, at the moment uh, these uh, government programs are benefiting just clean uh, technology companies, I think the innovations, once they're widely adopted by other sectors of the economy, They'll also benefit businesses there too. So I would say that maybe a majority of businesses, maybe the vast majority of businesses so will ultimately benefit. Then, the argument then would be that Trudeau is not really a progressive person. Yeah. He's just charismatic enough so that people or the progressive community thinks yeah. of him as, as progressive and follow him despite yeah. supporting, you know, centerized positions yeah exactly yeah and uh it's interesting and even on immigration for instance so um 
people forget that uh, Harper tried to uh, liberalize the immigration policy, uh, immigration policy, uh, in order to bring in more high, uh, highly skilled talent into the Canadian economy and in order to encourage growth. But then he had to backtrack because there was a lot of criticism of his temporary foreign workers program. And it came from the Liberals, ironically, and it came from the NDP, and it came from the Bloc Québécois. And so what he did was he introduced this uh, labor market impact assessment, which basically said that unless you can demonstrate that you cannot find a domestic worker to fill a certain job position, uh, only, well, uh, uh, in other words, it said that uh, you have to demonstrate that you cannot find a domestic worker to fill in a certain job position in order to make a request to hire a uh, foreign worker for that same position. Right. So, and then he, so the, he restricted immigration policy as a result of pop, uh, public pressures, not because of any ideological commitment. But then when you have Justin Trudeau coming in, he tried to continue the liberalization of uh, immigration policy, which had started under Harper. And he tried to weaken the uh, labor market impact assessment in, in some ways in order to make it easier for technology companies to hire from the global talent pool. And so you see uh, policy continuities like that, starting with Harper, continuing under Trudeau. But Trudeau is a, uh, has a nice smile. He's very cute. Uh, he gives these lovely speeches. And people think, well, he's such a nice guy. Uh, I'll just follow him anyway without really thinking about whether his policies were similar to those of the previous government. Right. And that shows the uh, power of charismatic leaders and right. so, shaping so people's people beliefs. listen to charismatic leaders. And I, by yeah. charismatic leaders, I'm, I'm imagining that people who can clearly articulate, perhaps with rhetorical flourish, yeah. their belief systems. Yeah. Is there any benefit, do you think, to, to such a system? Um... I think uh, charismatic leaders are important in the sense that they motivate people. And if uh, the policies are good, then you need a charismatic uh, leader in order to sell those policies, not only to, uh, to the public at large so that they're willing to support them uh, over the medium to longer term. But I think the drawback with charismatic leaders is that since they uh, tap into people's emotions... People follow them not necessarily because they're great leaders, but because they have great personalities. Yeah. And I think uh, you have to look at the content of what people are saying, not just how that person is saying that. Right, uh, right, right, right. Divulging that when content. When I was on my way here, I was driving here, I was listening to Sam Harris, and you know, he had this person on talking about jihadi leaders and white supremacist leaders, yeah. and how the the you know the continuing the the thing that holds them together is that the leaders like, tend to be charismatic people. Yeah. You know, so it's not really, the problem is not really that they're charismatic. It's the, the problem is that is the ideas that they hold. And so you can have charismatic leaders selling very horrible ideas, and you can have charismatic leaders selling really good ideas. Mm. And, you know, that's where the problem arises for yeah. people when it's, we're talking about how to think. You know, you can't just blindly follow a charismatic person. Yeah. That's right. true. And uh, a good example from the white supremacist camp would be Richard Spencer. Uh, he uses a lot of flowery language in order to explain uh, his ideas. And some people think that he's making an original contribution to knowledge. But honestly, if you look carefully at his ideas, um, they come from the neo-Nazi movement. And actually, I've read those exact same ideas from a uh, large book by Lothrop Stoddard that was published in the early 1920s. There's the, nothing new there. The appeal of Spencer, I find, is that he's, a lot, he's intellectual. He is intellectual. He, he quotes a lot of philosophers. He's, you can see that he's widely read, and he's making arguments that d are not emotional in much of the time. They're not really merely emotional arguments. So he's a widely read person, so he gives like a kind of intellectual face. Yeah, he, he sounds like an intellectual, I would say, and he speaks in a very elegant vernacular, yeah, far yeah. more elegant than the way I'm speaking now. Right, right. So I'll give him that. <laughs> but uh, if you look at his ideas, uh, I don't think they're very intellectual in the sense that, uh, like one of his arguments is that the reason why uh, 
Western European nations achieved this position of economic, ec uh, political, military, and social dominance at the world at large by the 19th century is because they have white people in those countries. Right, but I have to make a distinction between and that's intellectual, easy to intellectual and wrong. So okay. you can say that Richard Spencer is, in, is wrong yeah. about his his analysis, but I don't think that you would say he's not intellectual simply because he's wrong about that. Well, if he was an intellectual, I think he would uh, apply greater rigor to that um, to that topic before arriving at his conclusion. No, I, I feel like a lot of times intellectuals disagree. People disagree all the time. So to say that simply because a person is wrong, you know, yeah. the person didn't apply enough rigor. I think we we get into that problem there. But that's a topic for another day. Okay. Uh, the next one, the next uh, way people think, is there any other one? Uh, oh, yeah, there's, uh, well, there's a tendency to other, and I think we've uh, alluded to that earlier. So uh, one great example, of course, would be uh, Donald Trump. There, um, his campaign, in many ways, uh, his presidential campaign, uh, and his presidency is based upon othering other groups. And so that started when he uh, described uh, uh, Mexicans. Uh, he didn't describe them as legal immigrants, interestingly enough. He just said Mexicans that are co uh, coming across the border into the United States, they're criminals, they're rapists, they're horrible people, they're not Mexico's best, as he puts, uh, puts it. Uh, one thing I think about the concept of othering is I don't necessarily think that othering is a bad thing. Of course, when certain people do it, they do it wrongly. But I feel like the way that we think, the the very basis of all thinking about ourselves is othering. Because if I ask a person to describe themselves or to describe any community, what they do naturally is to describe that community in opposition to other communities. Not only that, when groups form a, a sense of self-identity, they often form it in the context of a larger community. So it's always like there's a larger community how are we different from them? Um, I agree that there are communities around the world that do that, but uh, I don't think it's a great idea, a way to form your own identity. So we ask ourselves, uh, why is it that after the process of decolonization was completed, do you have many of these countries that do not succeed as democracies, that face all of these economic problems? And I think the reason was because they only created a, they only achieved a short-term unity that was based upon opposition to a colonial uh, power. Yeah, but my argument, my argument was, though, my yeah. argument though is that all identity yeah. is based on opposition in that sense. Yeah. You know, like there is no identity that is not defined by others. So, for instance, the only reason if we are all white, nobody will call themselves a white person. If we're all black, nobody would call themselves a black person. So the concept of white and black emanates from recognizing that you're different from other people. Understand? So if I ask you what, what's the unique thing about capitalism, the way that you begin to describe capitalism would be in the context of other worldviews around. If there were no other worldviews, if there were no other economic systems, there would be no attempt or no real attempt to define capitalism as unique. And that's where othering is. Well, I think uh, I think you could describe capitalism without uh, describing other systems. Uh, you can um, just you can find positive reasons. Not, I not mean, to if, be yeah, I mean, the if, point. if capitalism was the only system on yes. Earth, the face of the earth, right. I think people can still uh, uh, identify positive reasons to support capitalism. No, they can say, I, I doubt uh, it. We have a we have a uh, private. We have uh, there'll uh, be no in such a world. There'll be no word for capitalism. There'll be no, there will be, because there's nothing else, there'll be no word for capitalism. That's the thing. But okay. Well, sure. And uh, I mean, I agree that there are other systems, and I agree that uh, people uh, compare and contrast capitalism with other systems. Mm -hmm. But I think capitalism survived as long as it did because there are reasons other than othering to uh, support capitalism. Certainly, certainly. So my point is that othering in itself is not a bad way to think. Yeah. In fact, it is the very basis of thinking. However, the, the problem arises when we other in, in order to demean. Yeah. You know, we other in order to hate on the person. And I think another problem is when you forge an identity 
an artificial identity based solely on othering. Yeah. Because uh, uh, what new, uh, let's say let's talk about Ghana for instance. Um, uh, Kwame Nkrumah uh, tried to create a, a national identity out of Ghana, and in the beginning it seemed to be successful because everyone could agree British colonial rule had to end. Ghana needed to uh, become an independent country, and we needed to build up an economy that was advanced. So, uh, British colonial rule was uh, over overthrown. But then after that, he found out that uh, many of those tribal identities were still more um, robust. They uh, were more important than the national identity, and he wasn't able to forge a nation out of Ghana, out of Ghana's people. Right. So Those tribalism I, remained. I actually grew up in Ghana, and I find that Ghana is one of the most successful, you know, countries in forging a national identity, at least compared to other countries I've been in. And I think that you have a point there, though, because the way Ghana works is, I think it's really interesting. Because in other countries, in Nigeria, for instance, you pointed out that there are lots of tribal entities around yeah. And they all, all have their like individual identities, but the way Ghana works is that there is there are lots of tribal entities, but then you have a dominant tribal entity, uh. and somehow all other tribal entities are submerged within that dominant tribal entity, so that they are almost erased. Okay, they are almost erased, so that you know even the people from other tribes speak the dominant tribal language. Mm. They they recognize the dominant tribal king. You know yeah. they they they. They practice the customs of the dominant yeah. tribe. Contrast that to Nigeria, where you know you have every tribe on their own, and there's no national identity there. And you can talk yeah. about the benefits and the downsides of that. Yeah, yeah. But I think I I, I get yeah. your point though about how you know there's a yeah. problem when the only thing that forges your identity is your opposition to another force. Yeah, right. So the problem with othering, then at least as I understand it. It's not that othering in itself is a problem. The problem is, you know, when you other and then dehumanize yeah. those you other. So I'm different from you. There's no problem with recognizing that I'm different from you. The problem is when I'm different from you and then you are evil or you are subhuman or there's something wrong with you simply yeah, because yeah, we're different. I agree. Yeah. So we can we can recognize differences. And I think that we ought to recognize differences because yeah. it's the very basis of of thinking about anything. If you want to think about anything, you have to identify how what makes that thing unique. And if everything were the same, you would yeah. not be able to find, you know, any you'd not be able to think about the thing at all. And I think uh, one way to do that when we, we turn the discussion to possible solutions is being able to appreciate individuality. Uh, being able to say to yourself, you know what, before I arrive at any conclusion about any person, I have to get to know that person first. You can talk about the practicality mm -hmm. of that, though. I don't think it's possible to know everybody, but yeah. I think that you know you can start with a bias, a bias towards humanity, and I think that's something I'll endorse. You know, always give the benefit of a doubt, always recognize that a person is human and there's intrinsic value in that person, yeah. despite the fact that you disagree. You know, and you approach situations in that way. Even if you know you might not like the ideas the person is, the things the person stands for, the things the person represents, but have that default bias of respect and humility and and you know love towards people. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, any other thing? Any other way people think? Well, um, I guess um, um, one of the other uh, things that I'm noticing a lot uh, in a number of societies is that uh, beliefs have less to do with facts and reasoning and more about um, feelings about alternative beliefs. For instance, um, um, I think, uh, so uh, a good example would be uh, that why do many people support Trump? And I think the re uh, one of the reasons is, I mean, there are a number of reasons. Racism is definitely a factor. Another reason that you see is that they hate the left so much that they're willing to support uh, Donald Trump and even uh, make excuses for his bad behavior right. I remember, like, this and bad policy picture, decisions. This viral picture of people, like, they would rather support Russia mm -hmm. than support Hillary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I saw that right, too, right, yeah. Right. 
Right. I'd rather support Putin than uh, Hillary Clinton. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think that, especially on this topic, I'll talk about two things. You know, how people uh, respond to emotional arguments rather than what people describe as facts, and how people compare and contrast. And this is, I think, if anybody's going to take anything out of this talk mm. about my idea, and I think this is the the basis of it, this is the crux, that many of the things are not bad in themselves. Mm. I don't think that there's anything wrong with comparing and contrasting. In fact, I think that it's mm. always best to think in the comparative. Mm. You know, never think about an idea, never merely criticize an idea in contrast to some utopian ideal that has never been mm. manifest in the world. I'm not saying that you never try to better yourself or never try to improve towards that ideal. Mm. But when you're choosing or making decisions, and people do this all the time, and in fact, I, I shared with you earlier that, you know, this is what I did when I was struggling with my religion and I was trying to decide between being an, a Christian and an atheist. It was that I was merely comp talking about religion and criticizing the things in religion and then default into atheism. Yeah. You know, not trying to think about atheism as a worldview in itself and trying to see if there any there's any kind of cohesion yeah. there, any kind of philosophical cohesion there. It was merely I, I reject this, I reject this, I reject this. Therefore, I become an atheist. But I what I encourage people to do then is to rather think about things comparatively. Not that this is wrong, but what does as compared to what? Yeah. You know, and that's the question that you should always ask as compared to what. So there's no problem with, you know, thinking about the left and thinking about the right, identify the things that you hate and on the right, yeah. and then rejecting them. The problem is, it, do you also do that to your own worldview? Yeah. Do you also think about your own community that way and identify the things you hate on the right and compare them, you mm -hmm. know, to the things that you hate or love on your own side. I agree, and uh, you see this uh, definitely during election cycles. So um, during the provincial election, what struck me was that there were very few people who wanted to say, you know what, uh, let's look at Doug Ford. Look at, look at uh, the good things about Doug Ford and the bad things about Doug Ford. Let's look at the good things about Kathleen Wynne and the bad things about Kathleen Wynne. Let's look at the uh, good things about Andrea Horwath from the NDP and the bad things about Andrea Horwath from the NDP. And then uh, say, okay, on balance, uh, let's say Kathleen Wynne is uh, the better leader and therefore I'm going to give my vote to her. Instead, it was... Okay, there's this one candidate that's absolutely great, and then there's these other candidates that are absolutely terrible. Right. And, and uh, also, I mean, it also leads to hypocrisy in a way, because um, during 2015, um, late 2015, on the eve of the federal election, or during the federal election when the people were campaigning, I remember seeing this documentary on the Attawa Piscat community. And this community faces a lot of problems. It's far up north, and it was built uh, and it was situated near to a uh, mining um, establishment. And as a result, the, mi uh, uh, the mining operations uh, polluted the water. And everyone was, and then, uh, and of course, the water wasn't drinkable. It couldn't be used for uh, the basic necess uh, necessities of life. And what struck me was at the end, uh, one of the people who did the documentary was uh, uh, blaming the federal government, blaming the Harper government, saying, yeah, we have to get rid of Harper. And then eventually people got rid of Harper. But what's interesting is that there wasn't any follow-up discussion about, okay, now that Harper's gone, did we address all those problems for the Ottawa Piscat community? And for that matter, were we able to... Um, also address the problems of uh, of uh, other uh, remote communities that have indigenous peoples, such as a there was one community that had lead in their water, and that uh, issue was actually brought up on the eve of uh, another election, which uh, Trudeau won, but he was reduced down to a minority. And it seems to me that uh, people were so obsessed about getting rid of uh, Harper, and they hated Harper so much that it didn't really matter whether the government that came in afterwards was going to uh, pursue an entirely new policy towards indigenous peoples that would address them on other kinds of concerns 
the problem of a contamination in lakes and rivers that happen to be located near to their communities. Right, right. So finally, uh, the, uh, at least the other one for me is this idea of emotion versus facts. And I think yeah. that people create a false dichotomy between these two things where you say uh, certain arguments are merely emotional and certain arguments are factual and then mm-hmm. people like to listen to emotional arguments. I think that there's someone I listen to a lot and he often says that when a person asks you a question, you, you should have to think about the person behind the question. You're not really merely answering the question itself. You're answering the person, the questioner. And oftentimes, this is something that's missing from our discussions because it's possible to give a clinical factual answer, and I put factual in quotes, a clinical factual answer to a question, but does not address the values and the, the biases of the person behind the question. And I think that this is very, it's, it's a very useful tool. So it's not a bad thing to be em- an emotive person, to be an emotional person. The problem is when you're only purely emotional and don't care about facts. But if a person asks me a question, and I, I know that for, per, perhaps they're feminist, hmm. or, when I answer the question, I have to answer the question factually, but in a way you know, that, that frames the, the, the answer that ties it back to the value of womanhood. You know, that is a more satisfying answer than merely answering the question and walking away. And that's, I think, where the interplay between emotional argumentation and factual argumentation comes in. It's, it's possible to do both at the same time, you know, answer the questioner behind the question. But also show that you care. Yeah, show that you care. <laughs> show that you care. I think that's better, perhaps a better way to put it. Yeah. You know, right. Interesting. So uh, I guess another factor that uh, another uh, another characteristic that uh, you see uh, at society at large is that um, that beliefs are often uh, the ba- on the base uh, made on the basis of a short-term attention span. So I noticed this with um, uh, this uh, Toronto professor. Um, you remember the co- very controversial professor? Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson, yes. Um, I noticed that some of the most, uh, the angriest reactions to Jordan Pier- Peterson were made on the basis of the fact that they only listened to a part of what he said and not to the entirety of what he said. So with Jordan Peterson, I find that you have to listen to this guy for like five to ten minutes, <laughs> take in all that information and then decide, okay, Jordan Peterson's right, or Jordan Peterson's wrong, or Jordan Peterson's opinion is somewhere in between those, uh, w- between right and wrong. Yeah. And a lot of people don't do that. Uh, they just look at a small snippet, and they just make up their mind about uh, how they feel about Jordan Peterson. And I don't think that's a very healthy way to arrive at a conclusion about anybody's opinions. Right. So... To push back on that a little bit, I would say that you, don't, you shouldn't have to listen to a person for 10 hours to, to know what their position on an issue yeah. is. And if you have to listen to them that long, perhaps the problem is they're not speaking clearly enough. Yeah. But I also like to say that it's possible for a person to be right on one issue and be wrong on others. Mm. So simply, you can listen to that 10-minute snippet of what Jordan Peterson says and think that he's wrong on that issue. But the problem, I think, arises when, based on that 10-minute snippet, you make a judgment about the whole person. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's a you make a too. judgment about the whole worldview rather than a judgment on that simple sentence. Yeah, he's just wrong, wrong during that what uh, 10 minutes of his life. Right, right, right. But he could be right at, I, uh, uh, when he says something different, uh, maybe over the next hour. Right, right. And and the problem, you know, it's... It should be able to extend the benefit of the doubt past that 10 minutes, yeah. you know. And I think that's where the problem lies, especially with people yeah. like Jordan Peterson. And also, you, uh, I find with Jordan Peterson that if you listen to him like for 10 minutes and then take in all that information, because sometimes he talks like that. So he has, a, he has a very complicated argument with all these nuances. Right, right, right. And uh, or, he, or he has this exchange with somebody where he's trying to um, test different ideas out. And then people listen to one of those ideas. Like one of them was, um, well, uh, when women put on lipstick, obviously it was to arouse men in the other to organization. Be honest, to be honest, I think I thought that was really crazy too. And to be honest, I think that Jordan Peterson is wrong on a lot of things. Yeah, He's wrong on a lot of things. 
Yeah, yeah, I, absolutely. I, there's no shame in admitting that. But, but he, uh, but he also could be wrong. But his statements are not nearly as bad as they're being made out to be. True, true, true. If That's you listen true to like five everybody. to ten minutes, yeah, <laughs> true. But, but if you listen to him for one minute, then you yeah. think, oh my god, this guy right. is I like did, the I actually evil incarnate. I actually listened to that podcast, uh, <laughs> to that interview, and it was terrible, to be honest. But John T- Peterson is wrong on a lot of things, yeah. but he's also right about a lot of things. And yeah. what I love about that is how when he's right. He's really, really, really right. <laughs> you know, he, 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 he hits the nail on the head so much. Yeah. So I, I'm able to overlook the times where he's terribly wrong. Yeah. Yeah. So. And uh, I think one of his best pieces was on feelings. Mm. That sometimes uh, the truth is very hard for people to handle. Uh, but you have to go through the process where uh, your feelings get hurt and you uh, discover the truth in order to develop as a human being. Okay. So the truth doesn't only only set you free, but but also by setting you free, it exposes you to things that could hurt your feelings. Right, because right. Because you're right. outside of that cocoon. Mm. But that uh, but uh, that process, being able to handle that process, is key to being able to develop as a human being. I think my my favorite line of Jordan Peterson is this argument about you know the best way to better the world is to better yourself. Yeah. You know because a lot of people and we'll talk about it later, but a lot of people simply think about other people as the bad people who need fixing and never mm. really internalize what they need to fix about themselves. And I think that's where the, the big problem is with most people. And also this idea that uh, victimhood, this idea of victimhood, it's been given such a broad definition that areas that would not normally f- uh, fall under victimhood become a part of victimhood. So for instance, uh, mental health. So some people have some serious mental health problems, and we should take these seriously, like schizophrenia, a depression. There are certain kinds of manic depression that are very serious. But I also heard during like uh, talks about mental health, this one woman saying that her business wasn't going well. She recently got a divorce. The legal battle, uh, um, there was a legal battle over the kids, and she was under a lot of stress, and she was uh, sad. I said, well, anybody going through that would be sad. It doesn't necessarily mean you have a mental health problem. You're not going to be living with this for years and years. When those circumstances that you've described uh, eventually pass, and they will, then presumably you're going to be going back to a stage where you're relatively happy and you're rebuilding your life and you're starting all over again. Presumably, And that's though. different from someone who has schizophrenia, but which is a lifelong that's condition. That's not true for everybody. Some people yeah. get stuck in that state over a long time. Yeah. And people have severe depression, you know, because of traumatic experiences like that. Yeah. But I think there's a conversation yeah. to be had about, you know, you know, the over diagnosis yeah. of certain yeah. conditions, you know, that's... I think we have moved the needle a bit okay. too far. Okay. Moved the needle a bit too far in describing people as mentally ill. You mm. know, but that's a conversation for another day. Okay, sure. Um so after thinking about all the ways in which people tend to think, what is the prescription for how people ought to think? If I if you were to ask me, I'll think I would say that the best way for people to think is to be conscious of all these things that have listed out, not to attempt to completely eliminate them. Not trying to say, okay, I'm not, because I find that a lot of people in the in the bid to be independent t- thinkers, they simply become reactive. Hmm. You know, they be, they try to be, I forget the word right now, but controversial. So mm-hmm. yeah, the way they think is simply to oppose anything the group stands for. Hmm. You know, so the group supports this, I oppose it. Yeah. You know, that's not how to think. You know, perhaps you shouldn't begin to say, okay, I'm not going to other everybody, anybody anymore. We are all the same. We're not all the same. Yeah. There's no need to live in denial about it. But to be aware of our biases, our cognitive biases, and try our best. Yeah. You know, to use all these things together, use emotional arguments in addition to rational arguments, not simply trying to be rational and reasonable and forget about the people, forget about the person behind the question. Yeah, yeah. So that's how I'll think that that would be my prescription for how people should think. What would be your prescription? I think um, there's a number of things. So I think uh, it's true that history doesn't repeat itself, but we do sort of repeat the mistakes of history in a uh, different way. Like it's a variation on the theme of history. So, uh, 
you see people, uh, like including in Europe, they fall into ideological traps. They end up becoming fascists or anarchists or communists or socialists. And they can't see outside of their group. And they contribute to the polarization of society. And we should study that period and learn from that and realize we don't want to be uh, people who fall into ideological traps. Instead, we want to be rational thinkers that rely on evidence, that understand that there's a common baseline of facts and we reach a consensus on what that common baseline is, and we draw conclusions rationally based upon the evidence. Right. Even if sometimes that puts us outside the group. Yeah. And even if sometimes that puts us within the group. Yeah. We shouldn't be afraid of thinking like the group. We shouldn't be afraid of thinking outside the group. Yeah. Right. And it's a bit like uh, what they said in Monty Python, Life of Brian. Figure things out on your own. You're all individuals. Right. Don't right. let anyone tell you what to think or how to think. Okay. I think that's a good place to end the first one. Yeah. All right. It was nice talking to you, John. It was nice talking to you, too. All right. Thank you.